Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. Hey there friends, welcome to the show. This is Having a Blast, and today I'm extremely excited to be speaking with my friend Warren Cook, original bassist of the band Yellow Card, one of the founding members as well. He's currently in the band Flag on Fire. I met Warren in 2001 when my band opened for Yellow Card for the first time, and we became close friends very quickly. They stayed with me at my parents' house, and we played countless shows with them around that time period. We talk about One for the Kids, Yellow Card, their first official full length, and this year it's celebrating its 20th anniversary which is crazy to think about warren and i talk about the 20-year re-release of one for the kids it's been remixed and remastered and it's up for pre-sale right now at lobsterrecords.com there are multiple limited vinyl variants as well as bundles and other merchandise we talk about the process of making it all come to fruition i had so much fun reconnecting with warren it had been almost 20 years since i last spoke with him i really appreciate his honesty and transparency with me in this conversation I think fans of One for the Kids and Yellow Card are going to really enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Warren Cook. How are you doing, man? What's up, buddy? How are you? Good. Yeah, good to see you, dude. Yeah, man. How you been? Good, man. Busy as hell, but great. Well, busy I guess that's good. a sign of a good life, right? Just yeah. Staying busy, staying active. How about yeah. you? How are things? Good, man. Super busy, too. You know, just doing what I can every day. Cool. What do you do for a living, if you don't mind me asking? I work for IT hardware provider. I'm a cool. sales manager, so I've got a team of sales reps underneath me, and we sell, you know, telecom, computers, laptops, monitors all over the world. Red. Very cool. Sounds like a good gig, man. Yeah, it's fun, man. I enjoy it. I love your hat strung out, right? Yep. 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 Got it at the show. Nice. Nice. Did you see them recently? We flag on fire open for them. That's a, right. About a year ago, last September. I remember seeing that. That's rad. That would have been a really cool show to see you guys play with them. That's cool. Yeah, what venue strung, down there? It was at 1904. Okay. Which is kind of a newer venue with strung out and the casualties. Oh, rad. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I forgot they went on a short run with those guys. That's kind of crazy. I remember seeing the casualties back when I was in high school and I thought I was punk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those, those guys are pretty punk. They're super yeah. nice guys, though. They're super that's, nice guys. That's really cool. Yeah, I think I met them on Warp Tour maybe back in like 2001 or 2002. 
Dude, thanks again for agreeing to do this. It's good to see you. I mean, it's been forever. This will be a cool trip down memory lane. And I wanted to ask you some questions about the re-release, obviously. But if you don't mind, I know the story roughly of you meeting the guys in Yellow Card and you guys forming that band before Ryan. But can you tell me a little bit about how you met Ben and LP? You guys went to school together, right? Yeah. So the story from my perspective is when I was a junior in high school, I was actually living in Tampa, Florida. My dad grew up originally in Jacksonville, and my parents were talking about relocating from Tampa to Jacksonville. And my parents found I was actively playing bass at the time in in different jazz bands and also, you know, like little garage punk bands too. And my parents found the school called Douglas Anderson School of the Arts in Jacksonville. And my dad kind of worked from home so we could move anywhere. And in November of 96, My dad drove me up to Jacksonville. We stayed in a hotel for the night and I auditioned for Douglas Anderson's jazz band. The bass player they had was no longer going to the school, Jacksonville Music Connection here. It was Scott Borland, who is Wes Borland from Limp Bizkit's brother. Yeah, he exited. I'm not sure what the story was there, but he was no longer at the school, so they needed a bass player. We drove up in November of 96. I auditioned. I got the gig. My dad and I moved up in January, got a small apartment just so I could start in the middle of the school year, 97. And my mom and my little brother were still in Tampa. They were working on selling the house and you know working their way up to Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. So I started Douglas Anderson January 97. And I remember telling my dad, it's great that I'm going to a, an arts magnet school. It was specifically centered around the arts. Mm-hmm. I told him, I said, you know, I want to start a band. Like I want to find the best guitar player in the school and the best drummer in the school and, you know, start our own project. And he was like, yeah, that's great. Just make sure you graduate. And that's kind of what happened. I met Ben Harper, I think in the cafeteria on my second day. And he was like, Hey, you're a bass player. I was like, yeah. And he's like, I'm a guitar player. And we kind of shared some common interests. He was into bad religion and Pennywise and LP wasn't going to the school at that time, but Ben knew LP and was like, I know this amazing drummer. We've got a jam. And I think the next day after school, the three of us played and I knew a guitar player named Todd, who was the first guitar player for yellow card. Mm -hmm. We started jamming with him And Todd was actually the first singer of Yellow Card. And then we realized, you know, we want to have like a a lead singer. So we met Ben Dobson, who was a guitar major at Douglas Anderson. And we approached him and that's pretty much how Yellow Card started. And for us, we treated it like an athlete would treat a sport. Mm -hmm. We practiced every day after school. We would drive straight from school to Ben Dobson's parents' house. They had like a band room set up in their garage, which was kind of away from the house. Mm-hmm. a detached garage, I guess you would call it, but it was set up perfectly like for a rehearsal space. And we would go there and practice every day from 4.30 to 7.30 every day of the wow. week. And then also on the weekends. So we were very rigorous with rehearsals. And our goal when we first started the band was, you know, we just want to play with these bigger bands that are coming through. At the time, we were very into Fat Wreck and Epitaph. We were looking up to bands like Lag Wagon, No Use for a Name, Strung Out, And it was always, it was kind of a fun competition. It was either us or Inspection 12 that would get those shows. We would (laughs) see that somebody was coming and it would be like, whoever could submit first would get the Mill and Collin show or the Pulley show or 10 foot pole. Yeah. Uh, And it, it was a lot of fun in high school. I mean, it grew and grew and grew. And that's cool. And you guys knew the inspection 12 dudes, you guys were friends and kindred spirits. And I'm pretty sure when I interviewed Tim, he said that he knew you and he knew Ben and he hung out with you guys and you guys are going to show. We basically grew up with those guys, you know, juniors, senior year of high school was us playing shows with those guys or going to go see them play. I think Pete Mosley came to like the second yellow card show ever. It was at a little biker bar called Spike's Doghouse. And I remember playing and seeing, I was like, oh my God, that's the dude from Mike 12 watching us. And then, you know, as time went on, we became really good friends with him, started playing shows with him quite frequently. Cool. 
That's awesome. Yeah. And at that point, had they been signed to Honest Dons or did that come later? That came later. Okay. Um, they, they signed to Honest Dons right around the same time that we signed to Lobster. Okay, cool. So it was, I think, maybe 2000. Yeah, so that was post-high school. I graduated high school in 98. Most of the guys we're talking about here either graduated 97 to 99, right in that era. So it okay. was like right around 2000s is when we started, you know, everybody kind of taking this really seriously and touring a lot and signing to independent labels. Cool. Awesome. You mentioned Ben Dobson. Why did he leave the band? Ben was on the first two records, which was Midget Tossing and Where We Stand. Mm-hmm. Where We Stand, I think, came out in 99. And when we were writing the next record, the follow-up to Where We Stand, Ben Dobson was really into electronic music like techno. Mm-hmm. And he was actually getting really successful at it. He was becoming a well-known DJ in Florida, making good money. And, and he was, you know, spinning records. And I remember we were practicing. I vividly remember this. We were practicing at his parents' house and we're in the detached garage, you know, writing what could potentially be the next record. And he's in his bedroom spinning records and working on his set for that Saturday night. Oh, wow. and I remember Ben Harper and I went into his bedroom and we were like, hey, we've got two new songs. We need you to come hear them so you can start writing lyrics. And you know, working on him with us. And he was like, I can't. I'm super busy with the set that I have to have done Saturday. And it kind of got to the point where he didn't have time for Yellow Card anymore. He only mm-hmm. had time for his DJing career, which was taking off, you know, and he was passionate about. So sure. it came to the point eventually where Yellow Card had to decide, look, you go do your thing and we're going to go do our thing. Right. Yeah. He just had to prioritize at that point, which makes sense. Especially when money's involved when you're really young, it's like you double down on the thing that's making you a living or making you a little bit of money, right? Or maybe even just the fact that he thought it would be a successful thing that was happening almost by accident quickly. So that's cool. I didn't realize that. I never knew that story about Ben being into techno music and then working towards that. How did things shift when Ryan joined the band? Because I think he joined pretty shortly after that, right? Yes. And he was in various bands and stuff. Yeah, he'd already left. I remember after high school, Ryan called me one night when he had the opportunity to join Craig's brother. Mm -hmm. And we were all taking college classes. And he was like, he was at Florida State University. And he called me and was like, you know, I had this opportunity to go play with Craig's brother. What do you think? Do you think I should do it? And I mean, I've always known Ryan was really talented. He was a theater major at Douglas Anderson Musical Theater. So he always had like the lead roles in all the musicals. And I knew he had a great voice and he was a pretty solid guitar player at the time. And I told him, I said, man, chase your dreams. You can always go back to college later. You know, Mm -hmm. this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We all kind of looked up to Craig's brother and he went out there and did the Craig's brother thing. And I think he was out there for about six to eight months. And while he was gone is when we parted ways with Ben Dobson and he'd just come back to Florida and was going to Florida State University. And Sean, our violinist, was also at Florida State. Mm-hmm. And we kind of knew Ryan was available. And Ryan had already written a couple songs, I think AWOL and Rockstar Land, that we'd kind of heard about. And uh, we really liked it. At the time, we were still kind of listening to the fat sound and epitaph sound, but we were getting into like Saves the Day mm-hmm. and Newfound Glory. And Ryan's songwriting kind of fit the direction that we kind of wanted to take the band in. And I remember Ben Harper would drive out to Tallahassee, which is about three hours west of us, which is where Florida State University is, and go out there and play with Ryan. And then he'd come back and he'd be like, oh, man, you know, it's really progressing. And it kind of evolved quickly into us asking Ryan to join the band. He was always a close friend of the band. He's actually thanked in the liner notes of where we stand. Ryan had a band in high school called Modern Amusement. Mm -hmm. I actually filled in on bass for them for like a few months. Oh, cool. I'd I'd played with Ryan before and we meshed really well musically. So it kind of seemed like a no brainer for us to be like, okay, well, our sound's evolving. 
Ryan's available. Let's see what we can do with this. Sure. What happened with him in school? Because you said he was in school, right? So did he have to transition away from school? Was that a conscious decision? He did. I believe he left school, went out with Craig's brother. When he came back from Craig's brother, I think he re-enrolled at Florida State. I think he was a theater major. Yeah. And then as Yellow Card started to take off, he moved back to Jacksonville. Okay. And we started heavily writing one for the kids. Pretty hardcore. Yeah. We had a there was a small music store in Jack's Beach called Honeytone Music that was owned by a friend of ours, Eddie Boss, who recently passed away from COVID. Uh, but he would oh, let bummer. us, yeah, it was a total bummer, hit us out of nowhere. But he would let us practice in his music store, I think on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. So we'd go into this little music store. It's probably only about a thousand square feet, the whole store. And we'd set up and, and that's where we pretty much wrote one for the kids was in this little tiny music store in Jacksonville beach. Cool. Okay. So you guys wrote it in Florida. When you started talking to potential producers, were there anybody that you were considering doing it with in Jacksonville? Because you guys went to California to record one for the kids, right? Yes, we did. Right when we were in pre-production, I guess you would call it or demoing of one of the kids, we'd sent out a small demo that was called still standing. Uh-huh. Now it's listed as a still standing EP. And I believe Drifting was on that and a couple other songs that ended up on one for the kids. And we sent those out to Lobster Records, of course. And mm-hmm. we also got it in the hands of Richard from Drive Through Records. Mm-hmm. So Ben and I flew out to California and met with both Steve at Lobster. And we went and had a meeting with Richard from Drive Through. Cool. And we, we knew that Drive Through was kind of blowing up at the time. Mm-hmm. They had, you know, Newfound Glory, I think starting line at that point, RX Bandits. They had a really solid lineup, but I had a close personal ties to Lobster Records. My older brother, Jameson, was living in Santa Barbara in the 90s and actually worked for Lagwagon as their drum tech. And Sean Dewey from Lagwagon was one of the co-owners of Lobster Records. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so, so we actually got, that's how we got tied to Lobster. I knew Steve from Lobster through my brother who worked for Lobster as well. So I had shopped old yellow card, like where we stand to lobster and old yellow card, the where we stand lineup. We actually toured out to California. I think we played like one show in Texas from Florida. And then we played like three shows in California and drove home just to kind of play for lobster. And uh, Steve from lobster was interested in the old lineup. He was like, you know, it's good. Just keep sending me stuff. But once I sent him still standing, there was definitely a lot more interest there. Okay. So we met with Steve. We met with Richard from drive through Ben and I thought about it a lot, came back, talked to the rest of the band. And we liked that Lobster was going to give us a little more attention, we thought, mm-hmm. than Drive Through would. It seemed like Steve was really, really behind us with Ryan in the band and with the songwriting that was in fruition coming to. So we liked that Steve really wanted to invest in the band and put a lot of effort behind it. So we ended up going with Lobster. When we signed with Lobster, we were actually still living in Jacksonville, Florida. So when we recorded one for the kids, Steve helped us pick out Stall 2 Studios, which is Fletcher from Pennywise's studio. Yeah. And the producer was Darian Rundell. So this was like our first professional recording. Cool. And we, I think we did it in like November of 2000, you know, October, November, we drove out to California and slept on our buddy's floor and we'd get up every morning. I think our buddy lived in like Santa Monica and the studio was in Huntington beach. And we'd get up every morning at like 7am load up in the van drive to the studio, Mm -hmm. start recording at like 9am. And there was a hard stop at the studio. If I remember correctly, I think it was like 6pm. Darian would be like, all right, you know, we stop at six. That's my personal time, my drink time. So we'd make sure we were in it. Yeah, we'd make sure we were in at 9am. So that way we got at least a solid eight hours with a lunch break every day. It was a learning experience for us. We never really worked with a producer before. And this will tie into our conversation later. There was no Pro Tools at the time. 
You know, this was, we were yeah. recording on two inch reel to reel tape. So it wasn't as easy as it is now where you can just simply punch in or copy and paste. And, you know, Darian, I remember they had a Pro Tools set up like in the corner. They had like uh-huh. a computer set up and Darian would threaten us. He'd be like, look, if you don't get it on this take, I'm going to move you to the Pro Tools rig. And that's like $400 an hour. And we would be like, oh no, you know, I got to cut this right. That's amazing. Yeah. So the experience itself was, was awesome. I mean, he taught us a lot, especially about songwriting. He did a little bit of pre-production with us and we learned things about how, you know, song structure and how to make sure that your choruses were, you know, choruses and they always sounded the same. And it was really cool to work with him. I'll bet. I'm sure that was being thrust into that environment. You guys had done largely a lot of your own recording and then to go work with a producer. That's definitely a game changer. Was this 2001? Because I know the record came out in 2001, but did you guys record it in 2001? We recorded it in 2000, I want to say, because it was, I remember it was right before the holidays because we hadn't moved to California yet. Ryan had, Ryan moved out ahead of us and Ryan was living, Ryan was living in Ventura County. So I think when we went out for the recording, that was Ryan's pilgrimage, if you want to call it that. That's when he was moving out. The rest of us went out, recorded and I think we played one show while we were out there. We played a chain reaction opening for, I want to say it was Slick Shoes. I think we were open oh, for cool. Slick Shoes at Chain Reaction. We left the studio one night, all got in the van and went and we were like the first band out of four bands to open, but it was our first time playing in Anaheim at Chain Reaction. Classic venue. Oh, it was awesome. And it was sold out. So even though we were first, it was completely packed. And the next time we went to play, it was like half capacity and we were just playing with locals. So we noticed we drew a lot of those kids back in. And then the third time we played there was when one for the kids just came out. I remember we brought a hundred CDs with us. Lobster was like, here's a hundred CDs, sell as many as you can. And we sold out of them. Wow. We sold them all. I remember taking the empty boxes back to Steve at Lobster and going, we sold them all. I need more. That's rad. But that was a great start for us. But Ryan had moved to California while we were recording. The rest of us came back. And then we slowly started moving out right after Christmas. I think I arrived in California January 2nd or 3rd Mm -hmm. of 2001. My fiance and I at the time just drove straight cross cross country with like a U-Haul trailer and moved out. That's a bit of a drive for sure. Oh yeah. It was about 40 something hours if I remember correctly. You know, our parents were, I remember my parents at the time, I was like, yeah, I'm dropping out of college and I'm moving to California with my punk band. And they were like, oh my God, what are you doing? And it, it was crazy. We all moved out there. We, Ryan, Sean, and I lived in one house with two other roommates. There was my fiance too. So there were six of us living in a three bedroom house. Wow. Um, and we had friends through the Craig's brother guys and through Ryan living out there. We had like an automatic friend base, if you want to call it that. Like a, a sure. bunch of people out there, they embraced us. They were like, oh, the yellow card guys are moving out. And a couple, of them worked, a couple of them worked at a call center selling like herbal supplements. And they actually got all of us jobs at this call center Mm -hmm. that we would work, you know, in between shows. Nice. So it was cool to, you know, move out there, have friends instantly that embraced us, have some kind of job security to work in between tours. It was just kind of like the perfect lineup for us. Yeah. It seems like calculated risk really on your part. You were thinking, okay, well, we're getting a record label. We're going to at least give this a good proper shot. The segues nicely into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, because I feel like one for the kids that generated a lot of hype right out of the gate. You mentioned that you sold out in albums once you had them at Chain Reaction that third time that you played. I remember the first time I heard Yellow Card, I believe it was on mp3.com. I heard Sure Shot. And that was where I was discovering a lot of bands. That was like the first iteration of streaming. I don't know if you remember that. Real quick, before we get into this though, I have a question. This is for my own personal curiosity because we used to hear so much crazy shit about drive-through. Did he make you walk (laughs) on his back? 
He certainly did. Ben and I, Ben Harper and I were in his office and he all of a sudden just, you know, he's a big dude. And he just yeah. goes, well, I need you guys to do me a favor. And he like laid on his stomach and was like, I need you guys to walk on my back. And I remember Ben and I standing on Richard's back, looking at each other going, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> you know, like we're just, I, yeah. I just met this guy five minutes ago and I'm walking on his back. And wow. okay. I don't know if that was like some weird mental thing he did with prospecting bands or what, but he definitely did it to Ben and I. And we, we both walked out of there going, okay, well, that was weird. I would imagine a lot of kids probably walked out of there going, that was weird. But I used to hear that all the time and I was always perplexed and I didn't really know if it was just a rumor or if it was an actual thing, but thank you for clearing that up for me. I appreciate it. Personally experienced that, not a rumor. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Yeah. MP3.com. Were you guys aware of MP3.com? Did you guys realize that that was generating some hype for you guys or? It was really weird. I think it was about a month or two after one of the kids came out, we started noticing that the turnouts to some of our shows were like tripling. Mm-hmm. And we, I remember I personally couldn't put my finger on it. You know, I was like, okay, well, I guess maybe it's word of mouth. But mm-hmm. I knew we found out about the mp3.com thing at the same time. I think there was, it wasn't quite Napster. It was like LimeWire or something like yeah. that. And some kids had gotten our CD, probably one of the kids at the Anaheim show, and they leaked it on LimeWire or, or one of those, you know, free sites. Yeah. And they'd, they'd mislabeled the it. Yeah, they mislabeled it as Rufio. Oh, okay. Rufio was blowing up at the time. And I think it was only a few songs. I think it was like October Night, Sure Shot, maybe Big Apple Heartbreak. But Mm -hmm. it was listed under the name Rufio. So all the, and Rufio was really big in LA at the time. They they were just blowing up. Yeah. And so kids were hearing it and they were going, wait, this isn't Rufio. And they were kind of starting to figure out, oh, wait, this is a band called Yellow Card. Mm Mm-hmm. And at the same time, mp3.com started to blow up. We saw October Nights and I think it was Starstruck. Those two songs started to kind of skyrocket a little bit. Numbers. Yeah. Maybe um, it was Starstruck. Maybe that was the first song I heard. Was, but it was, it was a situation where that. it had a chart. So based on how many people were listening to your band, and I remember for the longest time you had Rufio and I discovered Rufio offhandedly. I had a friend named Ryan in Kansas City. And he was a little bit older than me. And he was good friends with the guy who co-owned the militia group. And he moved out to California. He's from Kansas City. Oh, wow. So his name's Rory Felton. We knew Rory yeah, Felton. Rory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he knew bands. He's from Kansas City. So he was in a band with Kyle Coomer, who was in Game Time. Okay. So we just happened. I think it was Ryan who showed me Rufio's first three song demo. And I immediately loved it because I was just a huge Strung Out fan. I was a huge Slick Shoes fan. This is kind of a melding of those two genres, really. And then I remember seeing them on mp3.com and they were really high on the charts. And I think for a while, Yellow Card and Rufio, it was almost like a battle who was going to be first that day. But there was some sort of a thing where, and I didn't really realize this when I was a kid because I wasn't, I literally had a friend who was really good with computers and he was like, well, you can burn those songs onto CDs if you want so you can listen to it in your car. And so he burned me a Rufio song and a Yellow Card song, just a burned CD that I would just play in my car. And that was the first, this is before I met you guys and before we played together, but I would just listen to those two songs back to back over and over driving to school. But I remember mp3.com became the thing that there was a lot of bands I discovered through mp3.com, but you guys were always at the top. It was very consistent. It was you and Rufio always at the top spots. So I'm yeah, wondering I, if a lot I, of people are discovering that. I, I think your example of, you know, hey, my buddy was able to show me how to burn it to CD. We were seeing that happen all over the country. Yeah. Because that right after what Right after one for the kids came out, we started doing our own like homegrown tours. We didn't have a booking agent. So we were basically touring Florida and Southern California. 
So we would just drive yeah. back and forth. We wouldn't play any shows in between. We would do the 40 hour drive. We figured it would be, you know, there's five of us, everybody, each person do eight hours and we're in Florida or we're in California two days later. <laughs> and that's how we toured for like the first six months. We just, cause we knew we had a fan base in Florida. We knew we had a fan base in California mm-hmm. and we slowly started to fill in the gaps in between. Yeah. And what we noticed was when the mp3.com thing happened and we saw the file sharing going down and, and Metallica's freaking out, suing fans, yeah. we're actually grateful for it because it gave sure. us so much exposure. We were seeing, you know, smaller shows like in Pensacola, Florida, where there was normally 20 kids. Now there was 150, mm-hmm. you know, and it was almost overnight. It was as you were seeing, like you were saying, you know, the top of the charts for Rufio and Yellow Card kind of battling it out. We were seeing more and more kids having burned CDs and they were stoked when they could buy a one for the kids at the merch table. You know, they're like, oh, finally I can have it on CD. Yeah, no, I know I was. I was stoked to finally get that record on CD and I definitely listened to it. I mean, I wore that thing out. I was such a fan of you guys. And I remember when I first met you, I was actually booking a show for Park. And Mm -hmm. I think you guys hopped on a quick tour or a quick run with them through the Midwest. And that's how I I met you guys. Because I booked a show and they were playing the bottleneck in Lawrence, Kansas, and somebody else had booked that. And they asked if Game Time would play it because it was on a Thursday or something. So they just wanted to draw a few kids. But it was very last minute. It was like a week before they told me. And then I had booked a show at Altorion the following night. And that's when I met you guys and you guys stayed with me. I think, you know, it was a combination. It was the perfect storm because you had kids discovering you on this first iteration of a streaming network. But you guys were also really fucking good. You guys were really good. I remember when I first saw you guys, I had only heard that one song, so I was excited. But you guys came out to the Star Wars Dark Side theme song. And I mean, all of our jaws just hit the floor. We were just like, holy shit, this band is rad. And I think you guys were just tight and you were on and you sounded great. And it was good to see some different songs, hear some different songs. But also the fact that, you know, obviously you had this X factor with somebody with a violin on stage, which was something none of us had ever seen before. You guys had great energy. So it was probably in combination with that, because I can imagine if everybody's got your one song or a couple of songs burned on a CD and then they go see you, you got to impress them a little bit. You got to hook them so that they'll come back. And you yeah, guys well, did that. We were seeing the the result just in our merch numbers. I mean, it was crazy. We would press as many shirts as we could afford to press before tour. Yeah. And we would almost always come home empty handed, you know, like yeah. the last couple of shows, we wouldn't have shirts left. Um, sure. And we'd have to apologize to the kids like, hey, sorry, we sold out in Kansas. You know, sorry, yeah. we don't have them in Arizona. That's what really caught wind of a couple of different booking agents. And that's when the trajectory of the band just shot up. Um, okay. We ended up going with Corey Christopher from mm-hmm. Fierce Talent. Yeah, uh, She booked for Rise Against, Mad Caddies, Lawrence Arms. She still and... books for a lot of those bands too, right? Yeah. I think she yeah. still works with Rise Against. <laughs> Yep. She's still going. And she helped us out so much. You know, at the time we signed with some manager that I wish we never signed with just some LA dude. And he really didn't do anything for the band. He still takes credit to this day, but really it was Corey Christopher. Corey Christopher brought A&R reps to our LA shows. Corey Christopher knew Louis Bandek from Capitol and really got him to, interested in the band. And that's how we signed to Capitol. I give a hundred percent credit to Corey Christopher as far as the networking business, music business side of it. It wasn't yeah. for Corey. I, I don't know if we ever would have gotten on a big label like that she saw the live shows and that's when she was convinced like that's when she signed us i think she came to one show in la it was just like wow you guys have you guys have the stage presence and then she saw like the merch sales she saw the line at the merch table and it was just like wow you know i really Mm want to work with you guys we were like yes a booking agent i was booking all of our tours i was like sweet i don't have to do it anymore (laughs) what did you use did you use book your own fucking life i did that's why i first started was byofl and then um and then I, I used 
you know, a lot of times it was just finding my method was find the best band in each region. You know, mm-hmm. like we had, we had met Don't Look Down from New Jersey. And then we had Park in the Midwest. Uh, we met you guys. We had I-12 in Florida and a few other rad bands that we knew from Florida. And, and then we started to meet bands up the West Coast. And it was yeah. really more about trading shows. That's what it was about back then. And, you know, it was, it was the internet was so infantile compared to where it is now you know it was it was an infant but we used it you know i mean i remember being on aol message boards and just being like you know who's who's got a show in sacramento i'll trade you in bookie and ventura county you know and uh, we would just trade shows that's how you know and i remember just begging for a hundred bucks just be like just give us gas money you Mm -hmm. know we we just want to play your hometown we want to play with your crowd you know yeah would have been stoked to get gas money to the next place right (laughs) yeah i love it exactly there's that community that camaraderie you build that network and then you know who you can rely on in each town. Like you said, there was that reciprocity. You would want to try to help them out in Ventura. They'd help you out in Santa Cruz or up Northern California. Exactly. That's rad, man. I'm very excited for the 20-year re-release of One for the Kids. Still one of my favorite records. I listen to that record and it's just instant nostalgia. I have so many good feelings associated with that record. Not just from playing with you guys. I mean, that was really fun too, playing with you guys and meeting you guys. But I just really was a massive fan of those songs and that record in particular. There's something, I think there's something really unique about One for the Kids. You mentioned earlier about how Darian, he helped you guys figure out how to piece the songs and, and have a structure. But there's something a little unique about some of the songs on One for the Kids. Even a song like October Nights, it doesn't follow the traditional verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus formula. There's just something a little different about it and a little unique. And I loved that. I think it was just the fact that I really immersed myself in that record and then seeing you guys live, seeing you play it live, it translated really well. I mean, that's me going on a side tangent. I just really, I like that about One for the Kids. I think when you guys did the Underdog EP, that really follows the traditional formula. And I was obsessed with the Underdog EP as well. All the songs have that structure, maybe except for Rocket, they have that verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. How did the 20-year re-release for One for the Kids come about? Because I can already see some speculation happening on Chorus FM, which is the new version of AbsolutePunk.net. I don't know if you've okay. seen any of that, but it's kind Uh-oh. of entertaining because, wow, this reminds me of 2001 a little bit. How did that come about? Well, Steve called me, I think it was in March. Steve and I had kept in touch from Lobster over the years, mm-hmm. you know, and he reached out to me and said, you know, we're at 20 years of one for the kids. And I was like, wow, I didn't even think about that. That's crazy. And I knew that there was one pressing of one for the kids back in 2010 on Shop Radio Cast. Mm -hmm. I think was, he licensed it out to them. They did like, I think 1500 copies. Yeah. And I didn't even know when that happened. The way I found out about that is somebody brought one to a flag on fire show. And this girl walked up to me afterwards. was like, will you sign this? And I was like, where did you get this? (laughs) This is so cool. Yeah. Like I didn't know this came out on vinyl. So Steve approached me about it and said, you know, I'd like to do a small repressing of it for 20 year anniversary. And that's where the idea got sparked. He also called Ben and Ben Harper and I called Ben and I was like, Hey, do you think we should do this? It'd be kind of cool. And it was just perfect timing because at the time Ben through the pandemic had started a small studio in LA doing live Takeover live, right? Yeah. Yeah. Takeover live doing live shows. Basically when bands couldn't play any, you know, during the pandemic, they would come into his studio and set up and he had a pro tools rig there and it was really cool. And Ben was kind of like, you know, we could redo it and we could remix it in my studio. I was like, wow, that's, you know, but first we got to get our hands on the reels who has the two inch reel to reel. And Steve, of course, had it. 
we stored it for 20 years untouched. So cool. So we agreed that we would remix it and remaster it. And I actually took my son, my 16 year old son, Jake with me, and we flew out to LA in June and sat down for the beginning of that process. They'd already transferred the reel, digitized it. Mm -hmm. And when I got into Ben's studio, it was kind of like the first time the files had been opened and Steve still had the track sheets from the analog recording. And it was so cool to see all of our handwriting on, you know, like what track the bass was on and where the backup guitar was and where the the guitar solos were and backup harmonies. And it was all written out on handwritten on sheets. Mm -hmm. So we sat with Jamie McMahon, who he used to work at Motor Studios. He's worked with me personally, Gimme Gimme's, Tony Sly's Acoustic Records. And he was the one that actually remixed it with Ben and I just kind of sitting in the room. And it was so it was so cool to hear the individual tracks converted from analog to digital. And Ben and I agreed when we started remixing the record, we didn't want to alter the authentication of that record. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't want to add any extra guitar parts. We didn't want to re-record anything. Yeah. We just wanted to sonically bring it to life. Because to me, one for the kids, it was on a small budget. And right at the end of the recording phase, we were running out of, running out of that budget. Uh, sure. Stall 2 wasn't, wasn't a very cheap studio. So at the end, I mean, there was actually a, a point at the end where it was, should we do Ben's guitar solo in Something of Value or should we finish the backup vocals? Mm-hmm. So if you listen to Something of Value, there's actually an empty verse. Uh, that's where input Ben's guitar solo that was never recorded. <laughs> yeah. And so if you imagine if we're already running out of money at the end of the tracking phase, I think Ben Harper actually had to borrow a few hundred bucks from his mom so we could mix it. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So then it became, okay, well, that's rush mixing. And then the mastering process, I think back then mastering was kind of like, you just hand it off to a guy and he goes, yeah, I'm going to master it, you know? Yeah. So now Ben and I felt like, okay, well, this record could finally have a legit, no offense to Darian Rondell. He did everything he could with the resources that he had. But my point is now with Pro Tools, we were able to sonically really enhance the record. Yeah. It sounds crisper. It sounds warmer. It sounds fuller. And after we did about three revisions of remixing it, we sent it off to the blasting room and oh, had, right. them ma- had them master it. That's so awesome. I finally feel like this record got what it was due for, what it deserved, you know, kind of the, the enhancement that was needed. So Ben and I sat back afterwards and we A-beat it. You know, we, we would have the CD going of the original and then we would go to the digital remaster and it's just night and day it really pops out at you so we're super excited for one for the kids fans to finally hear it in all of its glory you know yeah dude i am excited i will be intently listening from front to back one of my favorite records did you hear the new propagandi version of today's empires tomorrow's ashes they just remixed that over at the blasting room as well for the 20th anniversary I haven't. I know I ordered the vinyl, the pre-order. Yeah. But I, but I haven't listened to it yet, to be honest. I mean, Dude. I'm sure it's amazing. So I only bring that up because I think in listening to that, I was a big fan of that record back then, 20 years ago. I was a massive Propagandi fan. And then hearing it, the remix version, I mean, it really does breathe new life. The same thing you're mentioning, it breathes new life into that record. There's just something about it. There's something warmer about it. And when I heard the newer version, the remixed remastered version of October Nights, I could hear that. I could hear that warmness that Mm -hmm. the mastering process can add to it sometimes. Because sometimes mastering, I think some people think mastering just means you're squashing the levels and you're making it louder, but that's not necessarily true, right? It can change the the dynamic. Yeah, there's a lot that can go on. We had several revisions 
visions sent over from the blasting room. And wow. some were warmer, some were brighter, some were, you know, and Ben Harper was actually hands-on with that part of it. I mean, I would just kind of listen to a couple songs and go, oh, cool, I like that. But Ben spent hours and hours just listening to it over and over and over. Wow. And just like you're saying, it's not necessarily just louder. You know, yeah. what we wanted was a good balance of warmth with crisp. Uh-huh. Awesome. So I think that that's where we landed. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Who did it? I'm just curious. Jason Livermore. Jason had actually worked with Lobster for years. I think he did one of the Buck Wild records back yeah. in the day. So Steve has a close tie to Jason. And Jamie cool. McMahon, who mixed our record, had worked with Jason before in the past. So the communication between them was great. You mm-hmm. know, to be able to have the engineer and the guy that's doing the mastering, like, you know, talk back and forth, right. Yeah. Instead of just handing it off. It was really cool. It was really seamless. The blaster room made it super easy. The turnaround time was amazing. I can't recommend them enough. I mean, it was, it was awesome. Cool. Yeah. I just interviewed Chris Beeble from over there. He's one of the producers over there. And it was really cool hearing about the history of that place. A lot of history at the blasting room. Cool. So that answers my next question. Have you heard the whole thing remixed and remastered? It sounds like you have. So oh, yeah. that's exciting. <laughs> Yeah, dude, that's rad. No, I am. I'm stoked. I can't wait to listen to it. It'll be good for new kids to listen to this record too. Like you said, your son's 16. It'll be cool for him to hear the finalized version, probably the version that you guys wanted back then. You know, it's like when you're close to your art, it's never perfect, right? You could literally spend eternity on it. It would never be finished. So sometimes it's good to outsource to other people so they can finish it for you. Game time, mm-hmm. we're recording these new songs and it's been so nice just tracking it and then walking away from it because if it were left up to me, left to my own devices, I would just be trying to perfect it forever. So that exactly. is very cool. It's funny. I went to my parents' house for Thanksgiving and I was going through old posters. I've got all these promotional posters and I still have a gigantic original one for the kids poster. One of the promotional posters that you guys must have left at my house. But oh, wow. it's, yeah, it's perfectly intact. It's got all of you on there. It's rad. It's really cool. It's um, <laughs> cool. This is unrelated. Something that I've always wondered. Do you know why the underdog EP isn't on any of the streaming networks? I have no idea. Man. Dude, that really I, pisses I me off, man. I want, yeah. the, I want to listen to the I, underdog EP. I had to, it's really funny. Like I just bought a new house last year. My girlfriend and I were moving in and she calls it an, I love me wall. It's a mm-hmm. wall where I put up like all posters, bands I've been in yes. and stuff. And I really wanted a vinyl copy of the underdog EP. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, I was on a mission. I was like, I'm going to find one. And I did some research into it. And I, like you said, I couldn't find underdog anywhere digitized. And then I ended up going on Discogs and buying the vinyl for, I think 120 bucks. Wow. Um, yeah. And then I had to buy one for the kids one too. So I spent yeah. like a hundred bucks on that, you know, so it was hilarious <laughs> that I was chasing down these vinyls that I was on just yeah. so I could have them, you know, on, on the wall of my house. Sure. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like the underdog EP never really got the push that it deserved. It was kind of a, a rush thing that we did right before Warp Tour 2002. Mm-hmm. And we were signed to Capital at the time and Capital just kind of licensed it to Field by Ramen to get it out quickly. Yeah. And then it, it just, it kind of was just a, an appetizer for Ocean Avenue. It was kind of like, okay, well, we got to get something out. You know, we've had one for the kids out for a while. Let's get underdog out and then start working on Ocean Avenue. Yeah, for sure. And in many ways, it felt like the next level beyond one for the kids. Me and my friends, I had a lot of friends through game time, different band members and things, different local bands and things. And we were all obsessed with one for the kids, but we were very excited to hear the underdog EP too. And the underdog EP to me, it feels like one for the kids still, but it sounded like maybe you had the opportunity to spend more time mixing and mastering. I really love those five songs. that, That record was done on Pro Tools. Really? So, okay. Yeah. So there's the evolution of us going from two inch reel to reel to, oh, wow. wow, you know, 
I think our manager at the time had a small studio in LA. And so we kind of had endless amount of time, you know, it was mm-hmm. kind of like he had an, an in-house engineer and just scheduled him for a week. Yeah. And we just went in and cut it as fast as we could. And that's when I kind of remember the, okay, yeah, just sing the chorus once, boom, cut and paste, you know, uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff was going down, Yeah, dude. Uh, which to me floored me. Cause I was just like, whoa. You know, that's, that's crazy. And that was the first time that I'd ever dealt with a DAW or Pro Tools. Sure. Yeah. Do you remember it crashing on you guys a lot back then? I do remember a couple of times happening. <laughs> I do remember that. It does it less uh, and less, but man, during the game time days, we actually recorded our buddy. He was quite a bit older than us. His name was Keith Caster, but he had a Pro Tools rig in his house. And that's what we recorded those first game time songs on was Pro Tools. So I never had the opportunity to work with tape, but that's crazy. That must have changed things in your minds as far as workflow for recording and things like that. Just the efficiency, you know, it was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy to think that engineers and producers fought it for so long. Dude, so of course, we don't have to go into this if you don't want to. I want to keep it positive. But just the fact that I have you here, it's been so long. I feel like at the very least, you should be allowed to express yourself however you want to. Again, I can cut out whatever. But for my own curiosity, because we were friends, we were buds back then. We had no idea. We were on Warp Tour in 2002. What exactly happened on that Warp Tour? Did you leave? I mean, do you want to talk about it? We certainly don't have to, but... No, it's fine. You know, 20 years later, it's a lot easier to talk about. Sure. Um, I walked away from the van and I believe it was San Antonio, Texas. Mm-hmm. There was just animosity that was growing. The direction of the band was was turning again. You know, and, and Yellow Card was something that I was in at that point for five, six years of my life. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were already making decisions for Ocean Avenue and, and you know, management and Capitol Records were picking our demographic, you know, which was 13, 15 year old kids. So there was, you know, no more fast stuff. We're not doing any fast songs anymore. And you know, just the evolution of the band. I mean, I saw where it was going and I, I didn't really want to be part of it. As hard as that was to walk away from something that I knew was about to blow up. You know, I knew it was about sure. to be huge. I saw the amount of press that was going to go into Ocean Avenue and I saw, you know, the wave that was coming. But for me, I, my heart just wasn't in it anymore. I think that year we did like 300 shows. I was really burnt out. I had just gotten married in December of the previous year, which management wasn't very stoked on, you know, it was kind of like, why didn't you ask us? You were getting married. And I was oh, like, I didn't know I need your approval. You know, um, so it, <laughs> yeah. it just, it got a little weird. Sure. I just wasn't happy. I mean, I was drinking a lot on that warp tour because I was miserable, you know? And it, like, I remember telling our tour manager, like, just get me a 12 pack of bud and leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Cause I just wasn't happy. I mean, the only time I was happy was when I was on stage, when I was on stage, sure. it was like, Oh, this is beautiful. This is perfect. This is what it's meant to be. And then afterwards, there was just a lot of animosity. There was a lot of bickering and, Mm -hmm. and our merch guy was my best friend from like middle school. And, and I felt bad because I had to walk away. I didn't want something really bad to happen. I didn't want a blow up. I didn't want, you know, I I just kind of felt like I'm going to step off the train now and and let the train keep going. You know, by all means, I wanted yellow card to continue to succeed. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to be part of that path anymore. You know, my heart, my heart was in fast punk rock. That's why I still play it today. You know, sure. uh, 20 years later, I'm still playing that that style of music. My vision for Yellow Card was always to have that longevity of a career like you see with Lagwagon. You mm-hmm. know, those guys are still putting out records. They still have that solid fan base. They never blew up and went huge, but they've still continued to have a career that grows, right? Right. And I kind of bucked the system a lot with that. You know, when when we were signing to Capital, it was kind of like, I was scared that we were going to lose creative control. I was scared that, you know, it wasn't really going to be our bands anymore. I was scared that we weren't going to have 
be able to call the shots of, you know, we're going to tour this month to this month. You know, mm-hmm. once you once you're part of that big machine and you've got so many people that aren't in the band that are making a percentage off of the band, you lose control. Yeah. You know, and I didn't want to be part of something like that. I wanted to be even if it meant that I had to walk away from that success, I wanted to be in a project where the band members had full control. Well, cool. yeah, that makes perfect sense. And thanks for sharing that. I really do appreciate it, man. Of course. I mean, we always wondered because we were on that Warped Tour. We played San Antonio. The two Warped Tours that we played a bunch of dates, we definitely played San Antonio. So I think we were there that day and it was a bit of a whirlwind because we were talking to you in the morning and then by nighttime, we were talking to Sean. We'd run into him at catering and that's when we found out everything. And so we were always left wondering, well, what exactly did happen? You know, and then you, yeah. you read things and it's there's all this speculation. So yeah, I think the press release said I left for personal reasons, you know, so we'll go with that. Yeah. But that night I I walked, I walked away, I grabbed my bag and and I walked onto the Volcom bus. So as you can imagine, there I was stranded in Texas and the Volcom guys were friends of mine for years, Mark Gardner and Mm -hmm. Ryan at Volcom. And they were like, Hey, just come on the bus and you can ride with us back to LA. And I ended up working for Volcom for the rest of the next week or so uh, on the way back to LA, just so I didn't have to like fly home. I was like, you know, they would throw me some bucks and I would sell merch, you know, and it was really hard because I was watching yellow card play. Sure. While I'm running, I'm running the Volcom merch booth, <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. And here, I can imagine hearing, that was a little you know, awkward. Yeah. Like hearing Sure Shot and, you know, Underdog. I can hear it from the tent that I'm working. Wow. So, yeah. Was, and I mean, for years, it was it was something mentally I definitely struggled with, you know, because that was, Yellow Card was my baby, you know? Yeah. And and then to see them, you know, on, on MTV and I was like, wow, you know, that, that was my baby, you know? So I, I definitely had some demons to fight there throughout my twenties, but I was always really proud of the band. You know, I was always Mm -hmm. very proud of the success that came about from that. Ben and LP and I had always stayed in touch to this day. They're still good, good friends of mine. Okay. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. If you had talked to them, I'm hoping I can chat with them. They talked about maybe doing it together or chatting at some point this week. So if I can get this out quickly, because you said the pre-order starts on Monday, right? For the 20th. Okay. It does. Cool. It's, it launches Monday, I believe, at 9 a.m. Pacific, so noon Eastern, I believe. Okay, rad. Yeah, and I will definitely be purchasing a copy. And there's going to be some other merchandise available too, right? There's going to be some shirts and different variants for the vinyl. And I think yeah, that's what so I read. What, what's cool is we can't, the plant that we're working with, it turns out a buddy of ours from high school runs a vinyl plant up in Athens, Georgia. I mean, it's, oh, it's wow. the connection's so weird. We were trying to get a plant out in LA to do it. And they were like, yeah, we can have it ready by 2023. And we were just like, whoa, yeah, that's not going to work. So a guy that we were working with out there that helped us, guided us through this process a little bit said, look, I know this small plant out in Athens, Georgia. Let me email them. I'll CC you guys on it. And he emailed them and immediately the guy wrote back and was like, what's up, Warren and Ben? It's Cash. I went to high school with you guys. And I'll be oh, like, wow. oh my gosh, he went to DA, Douglas Anderson. So that's crazy. Um, yeah. So we're able to work hand in hand with him. He's been a great help through this. And he's offered us four limited hand pours, which are really beautiful vinyl records. You know, they actually hand pour the color onto them. Cool. So each each one's unique. It's almost like a fingerprint, right? So those four colors are going to be tied directly to a merch bundle. So we're going to have three different t-shirt designs that are one for the kids designs for each of those hand pours. And then there's going to be a hoodie bundle that has its own hand poured as well. And those are limited. Then we're going to have seven color variants. 
that are going to be readily available. I think we haven't quite picked out the numbers exactly of the seven color variants. And then there's an unlimited amount of just black. If somebody just wants the record for 20 bucks, you can get a black one. That's so cool, man. That's very exciting. I know a lot of my friends are going to be into that for sure. Very cool. Dude, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for giving me your time today. It's been rad to catch up. It's good to see you again, man. Hopefully we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll stay in touch for sure. Please um, do. You should definitely come back. We should do a deep dive on an old fat wreck classic or something. We can just chat about it for fun. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah, dude. I'll and then that. I really dig your band flag on fire. I've been listening to you guys all week, just in preparation for this. The last record came out in 2018. Is that right? 2017. So we're definitely due for a new record. We've got eight songs written right now. Awesome. So we are close to finishing up pre-production on that. Hopefully going to have the new record out in 2022. Cool. Um, and we've toured on the West Coast before. We want to get back out there and do that again. Sure. Um, so we'll probably do a couple weeks of touring next year as well. I could see you guys doing some of the festivals too, because I feel like skate punk has really had this cool underground resurgence. And- oh, definitely. Everybody's a little bit older, which is cool because I think people are being more selective with how they play. And I was talking to Frank from much the same. I know they've got a couple of festival gigs lined up. It'd be cool to get you guys on there. That way you guys are doing different shows in different regions and stuff like that. And be really cool. Yeah, I would love it. Yeah, dude. Well, Red, I look forward to that. I will definitely check that out once it's out. Thanks again, Warren. It was good to see you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your holiday weekend. Are you chilling out this weekend? Uh, flag on fire. Flag on fire got a show tonight we're playing with oh, cool. a band called 430 steps from orlando and another band called cassette crisis at jackrabbits which has been around forever in downtown jacksonville so i've got that and then you know just kind of hanging out with my family at home enjoying my time off fun awesome man when do you go back to work monday monday yep okay all right back so. to the grind <laughs> exactly yeah, enjoy man. It, man. I, I hope you have a good holiday with your family will do Will do. Yeah, it's been fun. It's nice to take a little time off. And on a side note, I did want to say I really enjoy your, I I don't know if this is the right way to call it, but maybe your health tips on Facebook. (laughs) Yeah, for sure, man. Thank you. They're awesome. They are awesome, man. They've actually helped me a lot over the last year and a half. Dude, thank you. I really appreciate that, man. If you ever ever need any help, don't hesitate to reach out to me. That's my gig. That's what I do. I'm a personal trainer, so... I can tell you're passionate about it, man. So just keep doing that. It's awesome. It's it's got to feel good to know that you're helping so many people. Absolutely. Yeah, it's gratifying for sure. Well, thanks, dude. Awesome, man. This has been a pleasure. I'll keep in touch. Awesome, man. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Of course, man. Thank you. All right, buddy. Have a good weekend. All right, take it easy, brother. Later. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it. All right. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. I'll talk to you later. Hey.